0: All right, it's good to see you this morning. We're glad that you're here, and we have this opportunity to look at God's Word together and uh, just be drawn closer to Him and, and hear words of truth. I wanted to uh, begin a, a new sermon series today, uh, taking a look at sound bites, is what I've titled this sermon series. And it's interesting uh, to think about now how we live in a world of sound bites. It seems as though if anyone wants to communicate anything, they want to try to find a way of taking uh, lots of words and, and making it as short and concise as possible so that we can speak in ways that will fit on a coffee cup. And that's how we communicate. But you know, it hasn't always been that way. If we want to, I've got a picture here I want to show you uh, called the, uh, it's coming, the evolution of communication. So take a look at this graphic just for a moment. You can see that we've always sought to try to communicate in word, that words mean things, whereas people through words try to uh, help people know something or people try to become known. And we can see that. Uh, i try to get into a place where I can see this. You can see it started with cavemen as they thought, well, hey, we need to take our words and begin to write them down. And so language began and written words We're on tablets, and then they moved to many, many years later. uh, They turned into uh, the printing press, and then mass publication, and then from there we turned to email, and now we're just Twittering where you only use 140 characters. But can you see the posture of man too over time? (laughs) Like it's almost as though we're reverting back to, you know, I don't need to talk to people. Communication is just by my device. History and communication have changed over the years from the cavemen to Twitter. And now, as I said, we live in a world of soundbites where we try to have short phrases that capture or sum up our thoughts. We want to be short and concise. And you know, God, who is... The God of all communication, the God who has sought to make himself known. One of the ways that he has made himself known is through the written word. We have the Bible. We have God's revelation of himself to us so that we can know the God of the universe, the God that has created all things. And throughout the Bible, we can see that he is written in different ways. There are literary forms that God uses in this Bible. There there are four main types. One is, is the narrative or story. So if you open up the Bible in some places, in some ways, you'll hear narratives where God is clearly communicating a story or telling us what took place in history. You can also open places like the book of Psalms and you can see that God writes to us through poetry or he uses art to communicate more about himself. We can look to other places and we can see that God also writes to us in words of wisdom or gives us advice. But then the fourth type it's a type of epistle or it's a letter. And if we look at the Bible, we see the second half of the Bible and the majority of the New Testament is actually written in this literary form or in letters. And so over the next few weeks, we're going to actually look at this literary form. We're going to look at the letters of the New Testament. And most specifically, we're going to look at the shortest letters. They may not be the shortest sermons, Um, But we're going to take a look at the shortest letters that were written in the New Testament. So if you look at all of the letters that were written, what we're going to take a look at is almost like the postcards of the letter. So they're short and they're sweet, and the amount of information could fit on the back of a postcard. So there's not long scrolls, not long letters like the book of Romans or the letter of Romans. Um, so we're going to take a look at the postcards, or in other terms, the soundbites of the New Testament. short letters, and when you come to letters that are short like the ones we're going to take a look at, we must seek to understand what they mean and try to extract implication and application for our lives. But since they're so short, we know that the writers of these letters did not waste time using lots of flowery words. So because of the shortness and the conciseness of it, we can know that every single word has meaning and has an understanding behind it. So as we, over the next few weeks, take a look at the sound bites or letters from John, Jude, and Paul we're going to try to see some implications for our own lives. So if you've got a Bible, I'd love for you to take it out and turn with me to 2 John. 2 John. It's really short. It's less than a page in my Bible. It's half a page. And there are 13 verses of Second John, and we can see that it's in the form of the epistle, so it's a letter. So all of the uh, letters that we're going to take a look at have a similar form. Uh, we'll see that they will begin with an opening salutation, then they will move into a time of prayer or blessing or thanksgiving, then will come the meat or the body of the letter or the, or the reason that the letter was written, and then it'll end with a final greeting and a farewell. So we're going to take a look now at Second John. I'm going to read through it first in its entirety, and then we're going to spend time unpacking it together this morning. Second John. The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth that abides in us, and we will, and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from. God the Father, and from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son, in truth and love. I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as you were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing to you a new commandment, but one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world. Those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh, such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what you have worked for, but you will win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead does not abide in the teaching of Christ, does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son, If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting, for whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. The children of your elect sister greet you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word today. Father, we thank you that even in the, the briefness of words, deep and meaningful truth can be found. And so, Father, we thank you for this letter of Second John. And, Father, as we spend time unpacking it this morning, may the words of your truth breathe life to our souls. May you take this time to correct our thinking. May you take this time to correct our feelings. May you take this time to draw us deeper into you and allow us to know you as the one true and living God. Father, we pray that you would speak. And we pray that our ears would hear your message this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, as we have an opportunity to unpack uh, this letter today, I want us to begin by taking a look at, at who it's written from. It is written by John, and John refers to himself here as the elder, and he's using that word as an elder, he's referring to himself as, a, as an elder, as a term of authority, but also a term of care. He's writing because he cares for the people in whom he's writing to. And we can see that he's writing to the elect lady and her children. Now, John is not writing this letter to a person. He's not thinking of a specific person in mind. But by using the terminology, the elect lady and her children, he's writing to the church or he's writing to a church of his day it's made up of people. So he's writing to the church as the lady, and the, and the children are the people that make up the church. So he, he may have a specific church in mind, or he may have the, the church as a whole in mind as he writes this letter. But the purpose of writing this letter is he sees the church of his day, the people of God of his day are in the midst of an attack, they're in the midst of attack of two foundational aspects of the Christian faith. We can see it here. If you just count up the, the number of times these words are used, you can see that it's something important. In this short letter, he uses the word truth, and he uses the words love in, very, in, in a multitude of ways. And he's trying to convey something. He's, what he understands and what he's able to see is the church of God, the church of the people of God, are in the midst of an attack on truth and And love. These are two banners that followers of Christ wave. We are the people of truth and we are the people of love. We know that Christ came and he is the one that has cornered the market on truth and he's cornered the market on love. And because of John's great concern for his people, he writes this letter. And we can sum up this letter in just this one statement. John's writing to his people. And he's, he's reminding them to continue in truth and love and guard the truth. So continue. He's encouraging and saying, continue in truth and love. Even though you're in the midst of this onslaught of truth and love, where, there's, where it's trying to be redefined and it's trying to be redirected, you remain in truth and love and guard the truth. You know, if we're honest with ourselves this morning, it seems as though we are in a similar world. I mean, if you just think about it, think about how the world that we live in today are, are seeking to try to redefine where truth is derived, and they're trying to redefine what love is. It's this constant battle that we live in that no longer is the world looking to the Bible or looking to God or looking to Christ to be the definer of what is true, to be the definer of what is right, There's this position that's being changed that truth is now beginning to come from within, that I decide what is true. I decide what love is. So we live in a very similar world. It seems as though the world we live in has co-opted these words of truth and love, and they are in deep need of redemption. And I believe that's why God has placed us on the earth at this time. It's amazing to think about that God could have placed you on earth at any time in history. But he's so fit to place you right now. And he has sought fit to give you the grace and mercy and faith in Jesus Christ to live in the world that we live in right now. And the world we live in is in a world where truth and love are in need of redemption. You see, John reminds us that there will be an assault on truth and love. And it will come, where this assault will come from, it will come from deceivers. Look at me in verse 7 verse 7 he says for many deceivers have gone out into the world those who do not confess the coming of jesus christ in the flesh such one is the deceiver and the antichrist you see john gives us warnings of the presence of deceivers he says in in the beginning of verse 7 many will come he's letting us know that the danger is real There are many that will have thoughts and practices that they'll try to persuade you to take on that do not and are not founded on faith and truth. But these deceivers will come for personal profit. It reminds me of snake oil salesmen. You you guys remember snake oil salesmen in the late 1800s? The only way I remember this in my mind is, have you ever seen the movie Puff the Magic Dragon? Who lived by the sea. And, yeah. Puff the Magic Dragon. I love that that movie as a kid, but one of my, the parts I didn't like the most was when the snake oil salesman would come into town. He'd come in with his horse and covered wagon, and he'd open up for business, and he'd come with a lot of fanfare, and he was trying to sell sell snake oil or ointment that would cure all your ailments. Whatever you had, you take, you give me all your money, and then you take this, and uh, you, you, inst- you, Take this elixir or you begin to drink this tonic and it will cure, cure all of your ailments. Big fanfare, exorbitant claims in a very pushy way. And what they do is they'd come in proclaiming all of this truth, proclaiming all these promises and then they'd get you to buy into the claims and so you'd purchase it and you'd take it home and then you'd drink it and then what would take place, they would take off before the fallout of reality became real before you got to the point of where it didn't cure your back or it didn't cure your stomach pains or it didn't cure your blindness. So these deceivers would come and they would leave broken lives. John is reminding us that many will come and they will talk a big game, but they won't be able to back it up. Many will come and they will proclaim that if you believe this, if you do this, then you will have peace in this life. So John reminds us that many deceivers will come. He also gives us the proclamation of these deceivers. He says, this is, will be their message. And we can see it here: is that they. He says, many have gone out into the world, those that do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. The proclamation of these deceivers will always be an attack on the person of Christ. It will always be an attack on Christ. They will say that hope is not found in a person. Jesus was just a man or they will say that Jesus, because he is truth himself, they will say truth is found someplace else. Or truth is something else. But John is also very quick in verse 7 also to give the pronouncement of the deceiver. He says that person that comes that is a deceiver is an antichrist. He is against God. Christ. They will come and they will come with messages that will seek to get you to take your your eyes and your attention away from the person of Christ. They will promote and they will say that there's sufficiency and salvation found other ways than in the person of Christ. But John also gives us in verse 8 ways to respond to these deceivers. He says, watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but you may win A full reward. John reminds us that we are to be watchful. That we are to be on our guard. We are to be like a soldier that knows the enemy is prowling. That we are supposed to stay awake. That we're we're supposed to work and keep our eyes peeled. So that we know what is going on. So that we may not lose what it is that we have. And so that we may win the reward, which is Christ himself. We should be able to to see and to know when those snake oil salesmen come into town and they come with their messages proclaiming hope, proclaiming peace, proclaiming life, when they proclaim to fix our broken lives. We should be able to spot them, watch out for them, and guard ourselves against them so we do not give them any place in our home or in our life. That's exactly what Paul was reminding you. He says, if anyone comes to you and does not bring the teaching, the teaching of truth and love in Christ, do not receive them into your house or give them any greeting. Don't receive them. Do not allow their thoughts to have a place in your home. Do not allow them to come into your being. Do not allow them to come into your mind or begin to shape your affections. You see, John understood the reality of the onslaught that was taking place in the church in his day. You see, John was beginning to see the swelling of dangerous thought that was outside of the church that was beginning to creep its way in around the doctrine of Christ, the doctrine of Jesus. You see, John is enduring and encountering what was the beginning of Gnosticism in his day. It wasn't, the Gnosticism itself wasn't fully denounced until the, the Council of Nicaea in, in 325. But Gnosticism began. Gnosticism was this thought of saying that salvation and purpose in life are found through discovering of secret knowledge. So that's how you got to, to have um, salvation and that's how you found peace in life was through this secret knowledge that was only given to some. Gnostics also came to the understanding of things that were spiritual were good but things of the world or things that are physical are bad so anything physical is good anything that's in the spiritual realm is all good they believed in a god and they believed that he was good but anything that was of this world was bad anything that was made was bad and so this thought began to, to interact. And when you come to Christ, you see Gnosticism comes right into the face of Christ, and you have a challenge. You have a challenge of what do you do with Christ? Because we know that Christ is both spiritual, he's both God, but he's also man, that he is also of us, of this world. And so the Gnostics, or the beginning of this thought of Gnosticism, was challenged by the deity of Christ. They would say that, that Christ was not, he was God. But he wasn't man. Or that when he was a man, he was just an apparition. Or that he was just an image. So they were very challenged by that. So John's people were in a day where there was a battle over truth. There was a battle over defining and deciding who Christ really was. And John wants to encourage the followers of Christ, to fully separate themselves from this teaching and from these thoughts. You know, there's also, as I look at this, I can't help but to think how closely John's concern for the church mirrors our concern, should be our concern for our day. See, there's much deception in our day too. There's much deception around what is is truth and, and what is love, and they're continually seeking to be redefined. And I think in our world we have, we have two main ways in which people are trying to redefine or trying to decide and discover and defend or decide what is true and, and what is love. And so some would come from a philosophical perspective. Some say philosophy is the way that we find hope and peace and meaning, and through philosophy is the way that we define what is true, and then we know how to love. But then others say, no, it's not philosophy, but it's religion. It's religion that helps us. It's through understanding a set of principles or a set of beliefs that you know how to love and you know what is true. So what I want to do for a few moments this morning so I want to help expose some of the philosophical snake oil salesmen of our day. Not specific people, but specific thoughts and the ways that they've come in to uh, be a part of our lives and the people that we engage with. So there's the one, the philosophical snake oil salesman, comes from this world or this philosophical thought called modernism. Modernism came on the scene somewhere during the the time of the late 1800s and continued on through the 1960s, even though there's still ramifications and carryover today. But it was the predominant philosophical thought of the day from the late 1800s to the 1960s. And modernism is the teaching of this, that everything is dominated by the material. There's only that which is here, that which is. Anything that can be smelled, tasted, or touched, or experienced in a way that is meaningful to my hands. So there's no such thing as the supernatural. There's no such thing as, we don't need the supernatural because that goes beyond what I can taste or what I can touch or what I can see. And modernism is the idea is that it's through the accumulation of material things or that purpose and meaning and peace are found in these things. So if I want to be happy, then I will go and try to live and find bigger and better things. So purpose and meaning is found in things. So if I work really, really hard and I make a lot of money, then I can purchase bigger things. And when I have more things, then I will happy, and that's where I will find peace. So modernists would look at Christ. And they would be challenged by the supernatural. They would be challenged by the fact of miracles. So when Jesus, when the Bible says that Jesus walked on water, the modernist is completely befuddled by that. And they believe that that could not have happened, that there must be some logical, rational explanation of how Jesus was able to walk on water. Maybe he was walking on a sandbar or something other than that. So the modernist would try to find ways of rationally explaining the miraculous because there's no such thing as the miraculous. The modernist would come to a passage such as Jesus' claims in John ten ten, and we see that Jesus came so that we might have life and have it abundantly. So the modernist would come to that truth and that teaching, and they would say, well, Jesus came so that I have life and have it abundantly, so that Jesus came so that my life may be bigger and better. So Jesus came so that my life could be experienced in the here and the now. So I need to go and get as much stuff as possible because Jesus loves me. So Jesus loves me so I should have a Mercedes Benz. Jesus loves me so that I should have a bigger house. Jesus loves me so I should have the best job. Jesus loves me so I should have the beautiful family. Because Jesus came so that I might have life and have it abundantly. So we also see that the church, underneath the the reign of modernism, had to fight over the inerrancy of Scripture. That was the fight of the day from the late 1800s, even as you push towards the 60s and even to the 70s and the 80s. And we see that many mainline denominations went the way of of saying that the Bible isn't infallible, that the Bible isn't inerrant, that, that the things that took place in the Bible, that there are no such things as miracles, that Jesus was a historical figure, that if we try to figure out all the things that Jesus did and we try to follow the things that Jesus did, then we'll have happiness and we'll have peace. That was the fight of modernism. We can still see that we li- we're living in the hangover of modernism, too. But even the world and all its philosophical snake oil salesmen of modernism, we see that people began to see through modernism and they said, that's not it. That's not it. And so in the ni- late 1960s, postmodernism began. And postmodernism has kind of lived from the 1960s to the present, and it's been it was a reaction against modernism. For those that seeked, sought to find peace through material things, they began to become disillusioned. They said, That's not it. I can have all of this stuff, and it still doesn't bring me happiness. I can have all of the material. But I know in the end, this doesn't work. It doesn't bring about the end that I'd hoped. So post-modernism was born. And out of postmodernism, what we see is taking place is the, the thought of there is no such thing as truth. There is no such thing as truth. Truth doesn't exist in the material. Truth doesn't exist in the supernatural. There is no such thing as truth that stands outside of me. So biblical truth itself, the truth of the Bible, that th- the Bible speaks of, has completely collapsed. So under postmodernism, meaning and purpose are no longer discovered, but they're developed from within. What is most important, this is what the postmodernist says, what is most important is my experience and my happiness. I get to determine what is true. I get to determine what I mean when I say I love. And the postmodernist looks... And says that that you have no right to place boundaries or restrictions on my life based on your truth. We've heard this. You have your truth and I have mine. And what really happens is we see from the 1960s even now that this is so much evolved. That those that claim to believe and to hold to absolute truth are slowly becoming the enemy. So if you hold to absolute truth, if you believe that something is absolutely true, you're becoming the enemy because you become intolerant to the ways that truth and love and happiness are derived from inside of me. That's the battle of our day. That's the intellectual, philosophical battle that we are in the midst of. You see, these thoughts have made their way into our culture. They've also made its way into the church. That people somehow believe that being a follower of Christ, I can somehow believe the truth of God and somehow synthesize the thoughts of the world into my Christian faith. And we live now in the church and even outside of the church. We live in a confused gobbledygook of faith where faith is comprised of some worldly philosophies and some truth, and we don't, everyone just seems like a spiritual truth nutcase. So I want us to believe that there are snake oil salesmen in this world of philosophy, but there's also snake oil salesmen in the religious realm. So some would say, okay, philosophy is not the way. Philosophy doesn't bring me to the point of, of where real truth is because to even proclaim, here's the reality of the uh, meaninglessness of absolute truth and the, the, the genison of absolute truth. What we see is someone to say that there is no absolute truth. They're saying an absolute truth. Which doesn't make sense. So they, there's the, people are coming to the reality that postmodernism and that thought doesn't make sense. It doesn't work itself out really in my life. And so some would say, well, it's not in philosophy. Well, maybe it's in religion. So in an attempt to find meaning and purpose and peace in life, some have turned to religion. And there are many religious systems out there. But I want us to see that even in religion, religion is not the answer that will bring about the hope and peace that we're hoping for. For the best a religious system can do is bring about behavior modification. That's the best a religion can do. But we also see the religious systems of our day find their meetings in three realms of meaning. Now, you may want to write some of these down, and I'm going to use some big words, but I'm going to give you a big word, and then I'm going to give you the layman's word. I love the layman's words because I can't sometimes even pronounce some of the bigger words. But for those of you that are like into philosophy and religion, things like that, you'll love this. So the first realm that we find all religious systems find themselves in one of three ways. And some have a a combination of two. but, But if you sum it all down, you can see that religious systems are found in three truths. There's the epistemological truth. That's that truth and hope are found in knowledge. If I can somehow master a set of knowledge or if I can somehow change my mind, then that's what life is all about. That's where I will find meaning and purpose. If I can just get more knowledge. That's the epistemological. The second one is the mystical or experiential. If I can somehow just engage in this experience or if I feel this experience, then somehow that will fuse meaning and purpose into my life. So it's all about the feeling. I've got to go there so that I can feel this way. And if I feel this way, then it'll fix my problems. Or lastly, there's the pragmatic way or the the work towards works or production. Under this realm of of thinking a religious thought, we think it's how you live. It's based on how you live and what you do. That peace and meaning are based on those things. Peace and meaning are based on what you do. So if I want to be good, if I want to have peace, then I have to do this, 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 and this. So it's based on what I do. So you should be sitting there thinking, well, where then does Christianity place on that? Because, you know, if I think about it, Christianity does say that there is some kind of experiential thing to it. I should experience something. Uh, I should be doing certain things, but I also should have some sort of knowledge, right? So where is Christianity? I want us to believe that our faith in Christ is not any of those. It's not... Based on what we know, it's not based on what we experience, and it's not based on what we do. Christian faith is found only in the person of Christ. So, truth and love are found only that find their foundations, find their birth, find their meaning, find their existence in the person of Christ. So, the Christian faith is not a system that's built on any of those other things. It's the Christian faith is ontological. Now That's the big word. What it means is the Christian faith has found itself in being, not in doing, not in thinking, not in feeling, but it's based in being. And the being is the person of Christ. I want to walk through the writings of John Rufus fast and show this to you so you can see what I'm talking about, that Jesus Christ is not just a person of, of thought or experience or doing. He's a person of being. John, the writer of Second of John, writes in John, the gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 14, he says this, and the word, Jesus, God, or Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So we see that it, Jesus is not just about having knowledge of Christ, it's not about having knowledge of Jesus, but it's of knowing Christ. John 10.10, we see that Jesus says, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. That's not a passage where he's saying that life is just about the experience. Christ didn't come to give you a new experience in life. Christ came to give you a new life, to give you life that you haven't experienced before. So it's more than just this experiential thing. It's bigger. For this life is only temporary, but the life that Jesus is talking about is life eternal. We also know that it's, it's not based on what we do. John thirteen thirty four. Jesus says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, so that you are to love one another. See, Christ is not just saying that salvation is found in doing good works. He's not saying that. He says good works are done through us when we believe in the person of Christ. When we are in Christ, Christ does those works through us. But I love John 14, 6. John 14, 6 is the verse that brings all of those thoughts together in one. Jesus says in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So Jesus says, this, all that I am, is based on not what you do, not when you think or what you feel. It's based on me. It's based on my being. See, Jesus says he is the way to live It's more than just work. He is the path to truth, more than just knowledge. He is the word of life, more than just an experience. You see, what takes place, which is so miraculous about what Christ did, is He didn't just come to fix our bodies. He didn't just come to to place a Band-Aid on our rebellion. He didn't come to just do that. Jesus came to fix all that went wrong in our bodies and he made it right. Everything that went wrong in our bodies from the moment of the fall, as we're born into this world, Jesus came to not just fix it, to put a Band-Aid on it, but he changed it. He wanted to make all that was wrong and make it right. And it's only through understanding Christ as being that we can even begin to interpret 2 John 1 through 6 which we're not going to do today because we don't have time to do today but we have the next few times together as we're going to continue to unpack truth and love and how they live together we must understand though that to understand what it means to to be in Christ it's about being This world that we live in wants to continually attack truth and love. And if you're here and you've been looking to find truth and love through philosophy or religion, I want to encourage you to stop. It's not going to be found there. You're going to come to the end of your days and you're going to find out that the walk that you've walked is not going to give you the end that you've desired in this life or in the next it can only be found in the person of Christ. So come to the person of Christ. Come to the work of Christ and surrender yourself to him for he is the one that died the death that we deserved and lived the life that we couldn't. But For those of us that are believers, I, I pray that we walk away from this, this message today and we spend time Again, realizing that there are many deceivers in the world around us. And that we take time to evaluate the messages that we are hearing in our ears and the things that we're reading on Facebook and other places, that we begin to evaluate all of these sound bites through the person of Christ Because if we just let it go, what's going to take place is these sound bites are coming through our eyes, coming through our ears, and they'll begin to to take up a place, a residency in our home, and they will change our thoughts and they will change our affections. And over time, we will slowly drift away from being a person that's found in Christ to being someone that tries to synthesize what we hear in the world to our Christian faith. So We need to be people that guard ourselves. So as you're watching TV at night and a commercial comes up on the screen, you should be thinking through that, not just allowing those sound bites to come in, but thinking through what it is that you're hearing. Think through it is what is it that they're trying to say. And if they're trying to say that hope and life and meaning is found in a Snickers bar or hope and life and meaning is found in a new car, you reject that because you know that hope and meaning and truth and love are only found in the person of Christ. Let us be people that guard ourselves, guard our hearts and guard our minds, and fight to find our being in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and I thank you for our time together this morning. Father, I know that your words are true, father that you yourself are life and so father i pray that the reality of who you are would become more and more real to us every single day father we live in a really challenging time and it's possible that there are some even in this room right now that have synthesized their Christian faith with the thoughts of this world. Father, I pray today by the power of your spirit, I pray that you would reveal those, begin revealing those areas of our lives where we're living in places that are not true. We're living in ways that are not found in you. We're loving in ways that are not of you. So Father, I pray that your conviction would fall on us and that we would be reminded that you are our life. That you are the way, that you are the truth. So, Father, we thank you for who you are. And I pray, God, that whatever it is that we're struggling with, that we would do business with you before we leave this place today. In Jesus' name we pray.